Hey, last week we did announce that we are in the final stretch, the countdown until the launch of Taylor Bible Church. So four weeks from today, that church will be launched, uh, meeting at four in the afternoon there at Crossroads Assembly of God in Taylor. And so be praying for Pastor James and praying for Katie and the whole church family there. And for any of those here who were out last week for the holiday, uh, we began a series through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, this is Jesus' longest recorded sermon, and it is without a doubt the most famous sermon of all times. And so, if you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 in your Bibles. Now, by the time Jesus takes His seat on the mountainside to begin teaching His disciples, uh, what it means to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven right here and right now, everything was in place. Jesus had been baptized by John. He had been commissioned by His heavenly Father. He had already experienced the temptation in the wilderness. He has chosen His first disciples and was going throughout Galilee proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. His faith was spreading far and wide. The great crowds were coming and following Him from Galilee, from Jerusalem, from all Judea, and even from beyond the Jordan River. It was just the right time for Jesus as He sat there at the mount to begin to share His manifesto of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus begins with these words, Blessed are fortunate or approved by God are the poor in spirit, those who admit their utter spiritual bankruptcy, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And as we saw last week, what Jesus is saying here is for us, that we should delight in the knowledge of our spiritual poverty. The fact that we know that before God we are bankrupt. Delight in the knowledge of your spiritual poverty, in your deep sorrow over sin, in your humility before God and others, and in your longing for true transformation everywhere, within you and without. What Jesus is saying here is that the divine blessing rests on these kinds of people. Like the Beatitudes are a commendation of what God considers the good life. Like this is not some subjective statement about how these people may feel at any given time. It's the objective judgment about how God thinks about them. Like why would, I mean, if you just look at this list, why, why would anybody possibly describe this as the good life? Like why should we consider ourselves the fortunate ones if we look like these like descriptors? Well, because according to Jesus and based on His authority, because you alone are given the kingdom, you alone will be comforted. You alone will inherit the earth and you alone will be fully and finally satisfied. 
Like every statement here is in the emphatic in the Greek, communicating that these are the people who get in. Like these are the folks who go to heaven. These are the people who are comforted by God. These are the ones who will inherit the earth as God transforms it. And these are the ones who will be satisfied with Him alone. Understand the Beatitudes are meant to be seen as a whole. Like we're not supposed to see these as eight like separate descriptions or character qualities or virtues where we kind of get to pick and choose. Oh, I like that one, but I'm not fond of that one. Like, you know, we're supposed to embrace all eight of these together. Like Jesus is saying this, like all of this is what it looks like to follow me. Like this, all of this is the citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You know, we have people in every church in the world, but we have people who have left the church because they've never seen this. Like this is what Christianity looks like and people have left the church because they haven't seen it lived out. And on the other hand, People have left the church throughout the nations because they've had, they have seen this lived out and it's either terrified them or it's enraged them. But this is what Jesus calls us to be. Now, one helpful way to understand these eight Beatitudes is to organize them into two groups of four. That's what Jen Wilkin does. She states about them in the Beatitudes, Jesus shows His disciples where character takes root, that's the first four, verses three to six, and how character bears fruit, that's verses seven through twelve, what we'll look at this morning. Like if the character described in the first four Beatitudes, like has taken root, what kind of fruit should we expect? Well, we should expect verse seven, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Like what's described in the first four Beatitudes bears the fruit of compassion. Are you a compassionate person? Like are you a gracious and merciful person? I mean, just think about it. It makes to me perfect sense that if you like truly come to grips with your own spiritual bankruptcy, that before God there is no reason, no reason at all, God should accept you and welcome you into His presence. Like if you come to grips with your own spiritual bankruptcy and you have grieved over your own sin and over the, over the brokenness of the world and you have humbled yourself before God, seeing yourself accurately and have begun to hunger and thirst for righteousness, like if you have walked this path, if you have stepped through this gate, you will be merciful to others because you will see yourself in them. Right? Like you'll see yourself in them and you will recognize that God has shown you unbelievable mercy. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, Paul asks this question, what do you have that you were not given? And of course, the answer is absolutely nothing. I mean, the air that I breathe, the, the, the skin on my bones, like the organs within me, 
like the experiences I've had, the country I was born in, the family I was raised in, the salvation I've been given as a free gift. Like I am just a beggar telling other beggars where they can find bread. Like has God shown mercy to you? I know He has because you're here. You're breathing His air. Has God shown you more mercy than you deserve? If you don't think He has, boy, you are you have an inflated view of yourself. Like every single one of us deserves to, to be a greasy spot in the chair in which you are sitting. Except for the mercy of God. And as a result of that, we should delight in showing mercy to others because God will shower us with mercy. Like D.A. Carson is helpful in understanding the distinction between grace and mercy. He says that grace is the loving response like when of God when love is undeserved. On the other hand, mercy is the loving response of God prompted by our misery and our helplessness. Like God answers the undeserving with grace and He answers the miserable with mercy. Jesus looked upon the crowds and He had compassion on them because He saw them harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And what did He say? Man, pray. Pray that the Lord of the harvest will raise up laborers to go into the harvest field. You see, the merciful person remembers his own misery and God's mercy. And he sees the misery of others and he shows them, guys, just a portion, just a tiny bit of the mercy that God has shown to them. In 1 John 3.17, the Apostle asks this question, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God abide in him? Like I wonder, as John wrote that, was he thinking about this beatitude? Like are you so unaware of how miserable and wretched you are that you remain unmoved to the misery of our world? and of those around us? Like if you refuse to extend mercy to others when they ask for it, how can you possibly expect to receive mercy when you need it from God? The mercy you show, hear this, the mercy you show is the result of the mercy you know. Like if you know mercy, you will show mercy. In fact, this is the kind of cycle it works in. When you know mercy, you show mercy. And when you show mercy, then you know mercy. That's just how it works. Like I'm, I show kindness and grace and mercy and forgiveness to others because I have known that myself. And because I show it to others, I know it in a, in a fresh way because God gives it to me again and again and again and around and around and around. This cycle goes. 
hear this, you will never be asked to forgive anyone as much as God in Christ has forgiven you. Do you believe that? I mean, do you believe that? Let me hear it. Like you will never be asked by God to forgive half as much, a hundredth as much as God in Christ has forgiven you. Blessed are the merciful, for they, emphatic, they alone shall receive mercy. Next, blessed are the pure of heart, for they alone shall see God. Once again, what's described in the Beatitudes leading up to this bears the fruit of purity. So we need to delight in a pure heart because you will see God. Like I think for the rest of your life, you need to remind yourself of that. Like for the rest of your life, you ought to hold all your, hang all your hopes and dreams on that one fact. Christian, those of you who have surrendered your life to Christ, who have put your faith in the message of the gospel, you will see God, you alone. In Psalm 24, King David asked the question, Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. Does that sound like you? It doesn't sound like me. He will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God His Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek Your face, O God of Jacob. Guys, we serve a holy and invisible God who dwells in unapproachable light who no one has seen or can see. From the moment we were expelled from the Garden of Eden, seeing God has been prohibited to us and we are told that the soul that sees God will die. Now why can't we see God? It's not a deficiency with our eyes. It's a deficiency with our hearts. Our impurity both restricts us from seeing God and being in His presence and it blinds us to His presence all around us. I mean, think about it. Even Moses was denied the blessing of seeing the face of God. And yet, blessed are those who are pure of heart. For they shall see God. So what does it mean to be pure of heart? Like the word translated pure here is used elsewhere elsewhere to describe clear and clean water and pure gold that is unmixed by lesser metals. It has the idea of both moral purity and the purity of devotion. Both of holiness and being wholly devoted to Christ. The problem is Jeremiah 17.9 tells us that the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. It's beyond cure. And so if only the pure of heart will see God and our hearts are all corrupt, I mean, come on, if Moses didn't have a shot, what chance do you think you have? 
But understand, guys, to be pure of heart, (laughs) you must be given a new heart. You see, that's the good news of the Gospel. That's the good news of the promise made to Ezekiel that He would take away our heart of stone and He would give us a heart of flesh. To be pure is to have an impure heart that's been made clean by Christ. To be pure in heart is to have a divided heart redeemed and restored by Christ alone. In fact, writing to a bunch of redeemed sinners, the Apostle John writes these words, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Guys, I I can just tell you, I don't know of a better promise in the Bible. Like John is writing, and, and there's almost this sense of astonishment. He's saying, brothers and sisters, we don't even know Like, we don't even know. We don't know what the future holds. We don't know what God's going to do with us. But we do know this, that when we see Him, we're going to be like Him because we, we will see Him as He is. There's a sense of astonishment in His voice. And He says, because of this, if you believe this, if you hope in this, the result will be in this life here and now. You will strive to have a pure heart because He is pure. In other words, we purify ourselves now because we will be one day completely pure like Him. The visio day, the vision of God is our incentive to purity. Can you imagine what it's going to be like in that day? I mean, all of your life you have had this longing in your heart, this desire that nothing in this earth can satisfy as believers. Like you know what that is. Like you know. Like you have been talking to the invisible God all of your life as a Christian. You've been praying. You've been reading His words. You've been worshiping Him. And then one day, in an instant, in a moment, you will see Him. Kent Hughes writes this, since nothing is higher than God, seeing God is logically the greatest joy one can experience. Thus, when we pass from this world and see the face of Christ, the joy of that first split second will transcend all the accumulated joys of life. It will be the highest good, the greatest joy in that split second of recognition, believers will experience more joy than the sum total of accumulated joys of a long life. They will behold the dazzling blaze of His being that has been and will always be the abiding fascination of angels. Guys, can you imagine? Like we're invited into that. What scholars call the beatific vision. The blessed vision. 
Because in that moment, (laughs) that first sight of him will flood the human heart with complete satisfaction. Though we have not seen him, we love him. And though we do not see him now, we believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And so for right now, the purer our hearts become, the more we will see God in this life. The more we will recognize his hand. The more our hearts are focused on God, absorbed with him, single-minded in our devotion to him, the more in this life we will see him. Jesus says in verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons of God. You see, what's been described so far in the other Beatitudes leads as a fruit to this one, which is the fruit of reconciliation. Like what's the difference between a peacemaker and a peacekeeper? Probably every time your family gets together for a family reunion, you have a peacekeeper there, right? Someone who keeps the peace. When when some people get a little too angry, a little too irritated, a little too loud, a little too drunk. And the peacekeepers come in and try to bring like a little calm to that moment. But the difference is the difference between true peace and compromise. True peace and simple appeasement. Appeasement does not make for peace. It just puts off the conflict. Jeremiah in chapter 6 verse 14 rebukes mere peacekeeping by calling out the false prophets of appeasement. In that verse, God says of them, they dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. See the, see the people who just are trying to keep the peace in the moment? Like, don't address the real problems. Like, that's what's happening in Jeremiah's day. These false prophets are saying, peace, peace, it's all going to be good. And they dress the wounds of God's people as if they're not serious. Like, God's people have cancer and they're slapping a band-aid on it. On the other hand, peacemaking True peacemaking is serious business. We know that because Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker. In Isaiah 9, He is called the Prince of Peace. Colossians 1 tells of Him and it says, God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him that is in Christ and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Peacemaking is serious business because peacemaking is gospel business. Delight in bringing reconciliation, church, because it shows your true parentage. It shows who your father is. It shows who you belong to as brothers of the Prince of Peace, as sons of the God of Peace. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that we've been given 
the ministry of reconciliation as though God were making His appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. You see, peacemaking will have evangelism as its first priority. Like it will have this inner longing to see people made right with God and right with one another. Evangelism will be its first priority, but it won't be its only priority. Hebrews 12.14 makes it clear that we need to make every effort to live at peace with all men. And so if we're peacemakers, according to Jesus, true peacemakers can expect what comes next. Verse 11, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven and for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So everything that's led up to this moment, all the poverty of spirit, all the mourning over sin, all the humility before God and others, all that desire to be a merciful person and to be a peacemaker has led to the fruit of persecution. Delight in persecution. Hear this, because it does not go unnoticed. This is what Jesus says. It shows your true citizenship. He says it will be rewarded greatly. And in fact, you in doing so will be in good company because this is how they treated my prophets who were before you. Understand, this beatitude doesn't say blessed are those who are persecuted. Period. It says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. And then Jesus says, you're blessed if you're mistreated on account of me. Like the righteousness in view is simply an imitation of the life of Jesus. These blessed ones are those who have determined to live like Jesus lived. Because Jesus is the supreme example of the Beatitudes. He's the one who lived them out perfectly. Jesus says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Paul told Timothy, his young disciple, before he himself was martyred and left Timothy alone, to pastor the church in Ephesus, he says everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Living a life that reflects these beatitudes is an invitation for persecution. I mean, after all, once again, the the person who lived these out perfectly was nailed to a tree. Everyone who lives like Jesus will be persecuted. So church, don't be surprised when people speak evil of you because of Christ. Don't be surprised when people ostracize you because of Christ. Don't be surprised when you are persecuted. Be surprised when you are not. 
If you are not persecuted, then you need to examine whether you're in Christ at all or if that your Christian life is so substandard it could barely be called Christian. Jesus continues. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? You are no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city that is on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In verse 13, Jesus shifts from pronouncing blessings to stating responsibilities. He goes from explaining who we are and what we are to be as His disciples and He begins to spell out specifically what are we supposed to do as disciples. And so He tells His disciples, you, once again, emphatic, meaning you alone are the salt of the earth. You alone are the light of the world. I mean, you got to understand, guys, this is really early in the ministry of Jesus. Like, really early. And he is telling these poor, uneducated disciples who have no social or cultural standing at all in the world, no influence at all, that they alone are the hope of the entire world. I mean, that's crazy. That is out there. I mean, come on. Like if you said this about yourself, I would think that you are delusional. But Jesus is speaking this. In fact, Jesus even now is speaking this over you. Beloved, you alone are the salt of the earth. You alone are the light of the world. You alone are the hope of the nations. Now salt had a lot of functions in the ancient world. Purification, adding flavor, announcing judgment, creating thirst, and preservation. And Jesus certainly has all of these in mind. However, the most important function of salt in the ancient world, in a world without refrigeration, was used was was when it was used as a preservative the only way to preserve meat from rotting without refrigeration was to salt it down or to soak it in a saline solution and so the implication here from Jesus when he says you are the salt of the earth is that the world tends toward decomposition the world tends toward impurity that the world is in a sense a very real sense rotting away do you see it how can you not jesus is saying be salt in a world of decay it is undeniable that our world is in decay and if the world is left to itself it will become increasingly 
rancid. And so the world may not want you, but it desperately needs you. The world may not want you to be salt, but it desperately needs you to be salt. There was a great book written years and years ago called Out of the Salt Shaker that was a book about personal evangelism. And the idea of it is salt left in a salt shaker is useless. For salt to be useful, it must be used. And so if you want to be salt in the world, roll up your sleeves, church, and get to work. Start a business as a Christian. Start a school. Plant a church in four weeks. Run for office. Serve in your local school. Serve your community. Share the Gospel. Sign up to be equipped in evangelism explosion. Join the outreach team that goes out week after week during the second service. Make His kingdom known right here and right now. The world may not want you, but the world desperately needs you. Jesus also tells us to be the light of the world. Be light in a world of darkness. It was promised of Messiah that when He comes to Galilee of the Gentiles, that the people in darkness would see a great light. And guys, people are in darkness and people love the darkness. But the world may love darkness, but it desperately needs you to be the one to turn on the lights. Amy Carmichael, a missionary to India, wrote in her journal after hearing the Chinese missionary Hudson Taylor describe the lostness of the world, she wrote these words, Does it not stir our hearts to go forth and help them? Does it not make us long to leave our luxury, our exceeding light, and go to them who sit in darkness? See, in Isaiah chapter 9, God describes the Messiah as a light for the nations who would be salvation to the ends of the earth. In John chapter 8, Jesus said of Himself, I am the light of the world. But in this passage, He says that we are. See, Christians are like the moon reflecting the greater light of the sun. Like we reflect Christ and in doing so, point others to Him. And if you are the light, church, shine. And who will receive the glory? Your Father which is in heaven. I love what Daniel Aiken says about this passage. He says, exhibiting the character of the Beatitudes is what makes it possible for us to be salt and light on the earth. In fact, there is an important and eternal truth we must never forget. Those who love and follow King Jesus are the only real salt in this world that this world will ever taste and the only authentic light it will ever see. Guys, where there is decay, be the salt. And where there is darkness, we need to be the light. Let's pray. You know, light of the world who came down to Galilee of the Gentiles shrouded in darkness and they saw a great light. 
And for some of them, just moments are even in the moment of seeing and recognizing that great light for the very first time. Lord Jesus, you said to your disciples, you are the light. You are the salt. Lord, help us to carry that heavy responsibility, never forgetting that what the world needs is to see real Christians living out what you say in your word, what you say in your sermon, and bringing health and preservation and light and truth and the gospel. Lord, we want to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. And we want to take every element of our culture and place it under the Lordship of Christ. Lord, we thank You that this table represents how You purchased men and women for God from every tongue and tribe and people and nation, and You've made them a nation of priests to serve Your God. We thank You for Your sacrifice. Bless now this table. May this bread and cup be spiritual nourishment for us, we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.